Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. things that um, Pastor Barr did for me when in the summer of 2006 he released the leadership of this church to me um, was he gave me a Bible and he told me in front of the congregation, he said, whatever you do for you change the music, change the color of the walls, change the chairs and the pews, or change the way you do certain things, but he said, whatever you do, preach the word, and so that's what we're going to do, is we're going to preach the word. We're going to study through the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4, we're going to pick up in verse 16, what I want to do I'm going to read verses 16 and 17 that we went over last week. So I'm going to read those two, and then I'm going to walk us through kind of methodically verses 18 to 25. So we're going to kind of exegete, we're going to dig in and try to understand what it is that Paul is saying in these last few verses of chapter 4, and then we're going to zoom out, and we're going to kind of go back and pick up some of the story of the life of Abraham. Paul's been dancing around this guy Abraham, and we've talked a little bit about him, but I want to go back to the beginning of Abraham, the story of Abraham, and we're going to try to connect the dots between what Paul is saying about justification by grace through faith alone and the story of of the life of this guy Abraham. And then we're going to end with a question, and the question is really the title of my message, and it's this, how do I become a Christian, or some of you in this room would ask the question this way, how did I become a Christian? There are people in this room that I believe are asking the question, how do I become a Christian? You don't know saving faith yet, but there is some, that the Lord is drawing you, the the Holy Spirit, the Bible talks about this, the Holy Spirit draws people to saving faith, and you're here, and you're searching, and you're seeking, and that's not an accident, and it didn't happen just by your own devices. So that's part of who's in this room. The other part of you are in this room, and you are a Christian. You have saving faith, but you're not really sure how that happened. And it's important that we understand the answer to both of those questions. Would you agree? How do I become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? So let's get to work. Romans chapter 4, verse 16, Paul writes and says, That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his, talking about Abraham's, offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, This is an important verse. As it is written, I made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. What kind of God? The kind of God who gives life to to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. So now we're going to 
kind of walk methodically through these last few verses. Verse 18, in hope, Abraham believed against hope. It sounds a little weird. That he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. What does it mean that Abraham hoped beyond hope, against all hope? Literally, one translator rendered it this way, past hope, Beyond hope, Abraham hoped. Past hope or beyond hope, Abraham hoped in God. His situation, as Paul's about to explain, was hopeless. God gives a promise, and when Abraham considered the promise and looked at himself, it's impossible. So beyond hope, Abraham hoped. Verse 19. He did not weaken in the faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Paul didn't mention Sarah's age, but she was old too, okay? So he did not waver. He considered attentively is really what that word means. He took stock of his own Body. He did not ignore the reality of his natural physical condition. Instead, he stared his limitations right in the face. And here's what he saw. My body and Sarah's body, in terms of procreative ability, is dead. The door's closed. There's no functionality there. Everybody tracking with that? Okay. It was as good as dead. So he stared that limitation right in the face. But he didn't waver. That word means he didn't stagger, didn't stumble in his faith and trust in God. Let's keep reading. Verse 20. Verse 20. So no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. Okay, so he, he's anchored his hope to the promise of God despite the reality of his condition. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. As he gave glory to God. Isn't that interesting? So, being fully aware of his condition and the impossibility of the situation that God's promised me, I'm going to be the father of many nations, that my descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars, but my body in terms of having children and so also my wife's is as good as dead. Instead of focusing his hope on that, which would have been hopeless, he gave glory to God. He focused on who he knew God to be. And as we get back into the story of Abraham, we're going to see that Abraham had to learn that God is the God who can do the impossible. Right? So Abraham didn't waver between these two opinions. He considered his situation, but then he considered his God. And he magnified God instead of his limitations. Verse 21 fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Okay? His faith was counted to him as righteousness. When he placed his hope, beyond natural hope, in the God who could do the impossible, that faith, that trust 
that dependence was counted to him as righteousness. You with me? That faith, that trust was counted to him as righteousness. Now, here's the significance. Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, but the words, verse 23, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So, this, that last statement, raised for our justification, I think is the link that connects this whole thing together. All right? If you go back to verse 16, what did Paul tell us? He told us that Abraham believed in the God who calls dead things to life and calls things that don't exist into existence. And that faith, when he considered his dead body, was counted to him as righteousness. So that's the example of Abraham. The example of us is that this same God raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus who really died for our trespasses. That means he, we've talked about this, he took the wrath that we deserved. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? We are all children of wrath. You can go into Ephesians 1 and 2 and, and read that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But thanks be to God, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, right? Okay? So, in the same way, saving faith for us, just like Abraham believed God to do the impossible and it was counted to him as righteousness, the same is true for us. Saving faith, if you boil it down into its simplest terms, it's abandoning our trust hope and confidence in everything natural and placing it in the God who can do the impossible. Namely, resurrect dead hearts the same way he resurrected a dead body so that Abraham could become the father of many nations. So Jesus died for our trespasses and he was raised for our justification. I think that's what Paul is saying in these last few Verses, are you with me? All right, so let's back up and talk about Abraham. Who is this guy? You remember last week we said that when God called Abraham, Abraham was not a good old Jewish boy. He was actually a pagan, godless, uncircumcised Gentile. His father's name was Terah. And Terah was from a place called the Ur of the Chaldees. You know what Terah's career was? He had a workshop where he built idols to pagan gods. He's an idol worshiper. And Abraham, in his youth, worked in his father's workshop, building idols. They're idol worshipers. They're pagan people. At some point, when Abraham married Sarah, Terah took his family, along with Abraham and Sarah, and they moved to a place called Haran. And it's there in Haran that Terah, Abraham's father, died at the age of 205. This is kind of cool, isn't it? But in that place, in Haran, God comes to Abraham, a pagan, idol-worshipping, idol-building, uncircumcised Gentile. He comes to Abraham, and this is what he says, Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. It'll be on the screen. You can turn there if you want. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, that was his name before God made covenant with him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went, as the Lord told him, and with Lot who went with him, that's his nephew. Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So this is the point where Abraham's journey with God began. So he leaves Haran, and he starts to move towards the place that God directed him. It's the land of Canaan, the promised land, if you will. Right? He gets to Canaan, And he knows God has led him there, and he knows that God has promised to give him this land, that this is where he's going to make him a great nation. Even though he's 75 years old by this point, he gets there and he sees that this land of Canaan is inhabited by Canaanites. And I don't know but what that was a little bit intimidating to Abraham. So instead of staying where God told him to go, he actually moves out of Canaan and he goes over to this place called Negev. Negev is a wasteland, according to biblical history. And according to the Genesis account, when Abraham got to Negev, the wasteland, there's actually a famine going on in the wasteland. And so Abraham, as you might and I might, said to himself, I can't stay here. And so he wanders over into Egypt. Now, what we see in Abraham's life is we see a man who was minding his own business as a pagan idol worshiper, God comes to him and calls him and says, get up, Abraham, leave this place, go to a land I'm going to show you. And so he obeys initially, and then we see Abraham start to wonder. I get to Canaan, and it's full of Canaanites. I can't really stay here. I'm going to wander over to Negev. Well, i got nothing to eat in Negev, so let me wander into Egypt. God didn't tell him to go to Egypt. Now, what we see at this point in Abraham's life is Abraham's wondering and sin and failure to trust God but God's sovereign hand on Abraham's life. Because he gets into Egypt, and when he gets there, he he starts to think to himself, now, in Egypt, Pharaoh rules the roost. Pharaoh's a god in Egypt. He can have anything he wants. And my wife, Sarah, is beautiful. So Abraham was afraid when he got there that Pharaoh was going to kill him and take Sarah for himself. So what he does is he lies. He starts telling everybody, Sarah's my sister. We're just brother and sister. Nothing going on here, okay? So he lies and says, Sarah's my sister. And sure enough, Pharaoh gets word when he gets into Egypt that Sarah's beautiful and he calls for her. And thinking that she is Abraham's sister, this is the sovereign hand of God. Pharaoh loads Abraham up. Cattle livestock, gold. I mean, Abraham, this is when Abraham made his fortune. Okay? Pharaoh loads him up thinking Sarah's his sister, but you know what happened? God inflicted plagues upon Pharaoh when he took Sarah into his house. Plagues on him and his whole household, and Pharaoh finally wakes up and realizes there's something going on here, and he gets ticked at Abraham and sends him out, kicks him out of Egypt, but guess what Abraham leaves with? The spoils. Kicks him out of Egypt, and that pushes Abraham back towards the promised land. He gets a little closer back towards Canaan, and it's 
after leaving Egypt that God again comes to Abraham and says this, Genesis 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abraham, oh, well, let, me, let me back up, I missed a part, okay? As he, before I read that, just hold your finger right there. As he leaves Egypt and gets closer to Canaan, he's with, remember he's with his, his nephew Lot, all right? As they move back towards Canaan, Abraham's servants and Lot's servants get into a big fight. And Abraham comes to Lot and says, Lot, this is not going to work, okay? Our parties have gotten too big. We're going to have to split up. And so he says to Lot, look, you can take your pick of the land. You decide which direction you want to go, and I'll go the opposite. And so you can imagine what Lot did. Some of you know the story. He looked, and he saw and found the most plush and fruitful piece of land he could see, and he goes in that direction. And again, the sovereign hand of God, that actually pushes Abraham closer towards Canaan. So they separate, they split up, and then after they split up, God comes to Abraham, Genesis 13, verse 14. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot separated from him, lift up your eyes, look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring and I will make you make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring can be counted. Another promise. All the while, Abraham's learning. He's been called by God. Wasn't looking for it. Called by God. He's learning and he's growing and his trust and dependence is growing on the Lord. So it's not long after... The two split up. Lot and his party gets attacked by the king of Sodom. They come in and they take Lot and his family and his entourage captive. Abraham gets word this has happened. And Abraham mounts up all his fighting men. Such an adventurous story. You should read your Bibles. He mounts up all his fighting men. and He goes and attacks the king of Sodom and wins the battle. Wins the battle and rescues his nephew, Lot. And then something really strange and interesting happens. The king of Sodom, who's defeated now, comes to Abraham, and he's ready to negotiate. Okay, how are we going to settle this thing? You've won. How are we going to split this up? The land and everything else, all the spoils. You've won. I'm submitted to you. But he comes with this weird, mysterious guy named Melchizedek. And nobody's really sure exactly who this dude is. All kinds of speculation has been made about who Melchizedek actually was. Some say he was an angel. Some say that he was actually Jesus incarnate right then. Others have just speculated that he was just simply what the Bible says, a high priest of the Most High God. Just picture this. The king of Sodom, who's now whooped, and Melchizedek, a high priest of God, come to Abraham. The king's ready to negotiate. And here's what Abraham says to him. King, I don't want anything that you have to offer me. He essentially says to the king, you can go back and read it. When God's ready to give me this land, he'll give it to me. I'm not going to be made rich by you. And then he turns to Melchizedek, a high priest of, of the most high God, and gives him 10% of his entire fortune. And that's when, after that encounter, we come to Genesis 15. After all of that, Abraham seems to have learned something. 
He seems to have learned that if this relationship, this journey with God is going to work, I'm going to have to trust him implicitly. So God comes to Abraham, Genesis 15, and he says, Abraham, let's take a walk outside. I want you to look at the stars. So shall your offspring be. Paul told us what Abraham did, right? He looks at his body and he goes, he looks at Sarah. Sarah, I love you, but then he considers his God. The God whom he's learned to trust. And he says, I'm going to trust God to do the impossible. And then these words come piercing through the biblical narrative. Genesis 15, 6. And Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's when I think Abraham was saved. That's when I think, and it's, it's right for us to use this language. We've talked about the fact that it matters not to God in terms of time when he saves people. Salvation is always based on grace that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This is when Abraham was born again. This is when he became a child of God. After God found him, brought him along, he learned some things, and he finally came to to the place where he trusted God to do the impossible. That's Abraham. So let's ask the question, how do I become a Christian? How did I become a Christian? I want to give you five stages of salvation. Five stages stages that I've mined out of the scriptures, three of which are prior to being born again. The fourth is when we are born again, and, and the fifth is what happens beyond the the crisis moment, the critical moment of when we are actually saved and born again and justified. Five stages of salvation, okay? And I'm going to use this whiteboard. I hope you can all see it. But I'm going to try to illustrate this as best that I can. All right? Stuff's dropping. Here's stage number one, okay? If you're taking notes, you can write this down. It all starts with grace. Grace. It all starts with grace. God is the initiator of salvation. Every time. Sovereign grace always precedes saving faith. We are saved by grace through faith. Even if you grew up in a Christian home, Even if you grew up in a home saturated with the gospel, just stop and think about the grace of God to you. You could have been born into a family of idol worshipers. Idol makers. You could have been born in any and all manner of circumstances, but you were born where you were born. You were born to saved parents. You were born into a home or into an environment where the gospel saturated your life and you heard the message. It all starts with grace. 
Even if you, maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian home. Maybe you didn't grow up in a Christian background. Maybe you came from some of the most dysfunctional environments imaginable. But if you're a Christian today, you know all too well how God divinely interrupted your life, how He sent just the right people at just the right time. He found you. You were just in the right place at just the right time. And the gospel was proclaimed to you. And somehow you got invited into this journey, into a territory you were totally unfamiliar with. But God found you by His grace. It all starts with grace. And here's what grace does. All right, I'm going to draw a graph here. And this side is going to represent trust or faith or dependence, hope. This side is going to represent the knowledge of God. So here's what happens. When God's grace finds us, the first thing His grace does is make us aware of our condition. It makes us aware of our condition. You know what our condition is at that point? Zero. If this is 100% out here and 100% up here, when God's grace finds us first, there's zero knowledge, zero trust, and dependence. Remember what Paul said, Romans 3, verse 10, As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That's our condition. Sometimes we get this backwards. We think sometimes that salvation happens when I have this sort of self-aware moment where I suddenly become aware on my own of my condition and then I reach for God's grace and mercy. But how many of you understand the Bible's clear? We were dead in our trespasses and sin. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. We were controlled by the power of sin. And if that's our condition, apart from grace, we've got no hope of understanding our condition. Dead hearts don't seek after God. You remember Abraham, when God called him? He called him, and where's one of the first places he finds himself? In a wasteland, in a famine. And he goes, oh man, i got to do something. i got to provide for myself. And what did God have to teach him? No, Abraham, this journey of faith with me, you're not going to be your own provider. I'm going to provide for you. You're going to have to trust me to do the impossible. So, When God extends grace, one of the first things that happens is that we become aware of our condition. That's stage two. And then here's stage three. Again, we haven't gotten born again yet. God's grace comes, finds us. We begin to become aware of our condition by His grace. Then God begins to make Himself known to us. A journey starts. By grace and by the Spirit, we start to grow in knowledge and in trust. Remember what Paul said back in Romans 1, verse 16. 
For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Why is the gospel the power of God for salvation? The gospel is words. Some of you have probably heard the old adage that some old saint said that, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That doesn't work. The gospel is words. It requires words. Yes, it requires action too, but the gospel proclamation, the good news of salvation by grace through faith is the means through which God delivers grace. When you hear, faith comes by hearing by the word of God. So when the gospel is proclaimed, grace comes And the first thing it does is it makes us aware of our condition. And then that same proclamation, that same grace begins to invite us into a journey of discovery. Just who this God is. Like Abraham had to learn, I can trust this God who called me out of my homeland to a place that I don't know. And I can not only trust him with a journey like that, I can trust him to do the impossible. That's what happens when this journey begins. Think of a dating relationship. You know, when Mary and I started dating, we had both come out of sort of tumultuous, traumatic dating relationships. At least we thought they were that at the time. No offense to you young people. We started to date, right? I asked her out. We go somewhere. You know, we kind of get to the point where it's like, I like you. I like you, and I, I think I might trust you a little bit. It was a big deal for Mary to let me drive her car for the first time. I'm not kidding. We actually had an argument about it on like our second date. I wanted to drive. And she's like, "Uh uh-uh. We started to grow. We started to trust each other a little bit. And then we start holding hands, right? You know? And then we get to the point where we say, I love you. And then you go through those stages where it's like, is this... Is this it? Is this? I mean, like, I remember in my college dorm room praying, God, if she's not the one, take her out of my life. I don't want to mess this up. This is big. This is huge. And then came that moment, Caesar's head on the side of a mountain after a picnic. I got down on one knee, and I opened a little box with a diamond ring in it, and I said, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. Will you spend yours with me? Our relationship got to the point. Getting to know each other. Developing trust. Independence on each other. A critical moment happened. Where I committed to her and she committed to me for the rest of our life. God's grace finds us. Mind in our own business, you didn't find the Lord, the Lord found you. Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Ephesians says that we were chosen, adopted before the foundation of the world. to Be holy and blameless. His grace finds us. It exposes our condition and it invites us on a journey to grow in trust and faith. And at some point, there's a crisis moment. At some point, there's a critical moment where I I stop dating the Lord 
I stopped thinking, oh, you know what, Jesus is cool, and he said some good things, and I certainly don't want to go to hell when I die. I like this. This is interesting. This seems beautiful. It's a beautiful story. I like it when we sing songs in church. I like church. The pastor, he's pretty good. You, you, you know, you get past all those initial dating things, and at some point you go, you know what? I'm going to trust this God to do the impossible, to raise my dead heart to life. My knowledge of him, I've come to know him as the God who does the impossible. His grace has invited me into that knowledge. And by his grace, though I've wondered at times and I've I've tried to do it on my own, I've tried to fix myself, I've learned that that's not going to work, but he's demonstrated to me that I can trust him. And the primary way he demonstrated that was he hung his son on a cross and poured his wrath out on him for our justification. So I come to that place where I say, you know what? I'm going to trust you. Not just to meet my financial needs or heal me when I'm sick or fix my marital problems or make my life better. I'm going to trust you in my life, period. I'm yours. We don't get there by, except by, by grace, through faith. But that's the moment, folks. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old has passed away. And everything's become new. And then begins the fifth stage. Let me do this quickly. And the fifth stage is what I would call the growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3 real quickly. 2 Peter 3 verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting on these, be diligent to be found in him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our Beloved brother Paul, I love this, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. Can we say amen to Peter? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destructions as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your stability. But here's the command. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I read that this week, and I stopped and asked the question, what does it mean, Peter? I get grow in knowledge. I get that. We understand that. That's why we dig into the Scriptures. We want to understand. We want to know this God. We want a a spirit of wisdom and revelation that we may know Him better. That makes perfect sense, but Peter... What does it mean to grow in grace? Because here's what we know about grace. It's God's favor. It's God's power towards us. But we don't earn that grace. So if I don't earn the grace that brings me to saving faith, if I don't merit that through my own performance of obedience or faith, then I'm certainly not going to grow in more favor with God by my performance of obedience or faith. You with me? 
So what does it mean to grow in grace? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that as we come to the place of salvation and we continue to grow in knowledge of this God, growing in grace means that we continue to grow in greater and greater trust and dependence on that grace and His Spirit. And that never stops on this side of eternity. We've said it many times before, I'll say it again. Growing, maturing in your relationship with Jesus is the exact opposite of growing and maturing as a human being. As you grow and get older as a human being from a child into your young adult, adult years, the goal is for you to become more and more independent. But your spiritual life, your journey of faith with Jesus is the exact opposite. You become mature by becoming more and more dependent, by trusting more and more, by depending more and more, by hoping beyond hope more and more. Back to verse 16, that's why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. And then verse 23 again. The words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. As the praise team comes, some of you are here and you're asking the question, how do I become a Christian? Like, how does that happen? And, and you're here, and you, you, you feel a little bit like Abraham. You know, God found you, God called you, and you've begun this journey, and you still got a lot of questions. You're still learning, you're still growing, but you, you're asking the question, you know, how do I know for sure that I am saved, that I'm born again, that I've become a Christian? I... I'm here to tell you this morning, the answer is the same for you as it is for those that are asking the question, how did I become a Christian? It's by grace through faith. It's trusting in God to do the impossible. The God who could raise dead bodies like Abraham and Sarah's to give birth to a son Isaac so that a nation can be born, a nation from which Messiah would come. In the same way, we trust this God poured out his wrath on his son, that he really died, and that he was raised to life so that our dead hearts could be raised to new life in him. So here's what we're going to do. I want to invite you into hope. Hope beyond hope. We're going to sing about hope. We're going to sing about Jesus because he is our living hope. If you're here today and the Lord's been drawing you and you're like, you know, I kind of feel like Abraham. I'm ready to trust him with my life. I haven't really been at that place before, but I, I want to trust Him with my life. I want to surrender everything to Him. 
There's some people that are going to be right here in this corner, in that corner, that are ready to pray with you as we sing. Maybe you're here and you are a Christian and you do have saving faith, but you just feel like, you know what, I'd love for someone to pray with me so that as I continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus, that I could just grow in my trust, grow in my dependence. I need him all the more. Maybe you have some other need and you just like prayer. We welcome that as well. You can come forward as we sing, and there are people here to meet you and pray with you as we sing. So would you stand? I'm going to pray. And then I invite you to come, I invite you to worship, I invite you to surrender, I invite you into hope. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word, thank you for the book of Romans, thank you for the story of Abraham and all that you did in his life so that we might understand what it means to be saved. We've been talking about justification and now we're starting to understand what this means is that we come to the place where we trust you to do the impossible. I believe there's some people here this morning that want to lean into that all the more. And so as we sing, Holy Spirit, do what I cannot do. Draw people, men and women, boys and girls, to yourself as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.